Hi. <coughs> Welcome to System Change Made Simple. You've probably heard of that slogan, System Change, Not Climate Change. That's a slogan I really like. And so this podcast is devoted to that topic. How could we actually change the system? Um, so we live in a number of different systems. You know, capitalism's the obvious one, but also racism, patriarchy. So we could talk about changing systems, not just the system. My name is Terry Lay. I'm a sociologist and an environmentalist. I'm interested in this podcast in looking at, you know, how, how do these systems come about? How do they get set up? How are they interconnected with each other? And what we can possibly do to make a fresh start and get to something seriously better than what we've got at the moment. So get a hot drink and get comfortable. This is System Change Made Simple. This this is the second series, uh, which is on patriarchy and the connection between patriarchy and social class societies. And this one is called Why Patriarchy? Looking at whether patriarchy is a global and trans-historical thing and whether it can be overthrown and so on. And what is the basic cause of patriarchy? Anyway, I'll begin. Well, I'm going to argue that patriarchy is pretty well universal in human societies, but that doesn't mean it's always equally oppressive or equally severe. And I'll talk about that. The second thing I'm going to say is that doesn't mean that it's inevitable or necessary. In fact, we have the means to overthrow patriarchy in current society, and we're doing that. This kind of analysis is opposed to the views that you get from both the left and the right, the dominant views of both, which is on the left, basically, that patriarchy is like socially constructed, and usually they would also say that it's constructed in the context of capitalist society or maybe even class societies in general. And um, the view on the right, of course, is that patriarchy is totally universal, and that it's inevitable and that nothing can be done to get rid of it and that, you know, we ought to get to like it. I mean, I don't think that's a very viable proposition. But anyway, yeah, I'm going to say that actually the fact that we, we now have the conditions to get rid of patriarchy means that if you go around thinking that it's universal and inevitable, you actually come across various problems in your life and you'll find that it's not a very comfortable way to live. But anyway... Looking back to what I said before about my analysis of what patriarchy is, we can think of this as an analysis that could be applied to other societies. Because the analysis that I gave in the last talk was founded on the idea that patriarchy can be understood as a form of exploitation in terms of basic drives of human nature, autonomy, sexual pleasure, physical well-being, social pleasures, and so on. And so we could look at other societies in terms of this. I'll do this in a minute and talk about other societies and how this kind of analysis might be applied. All right, so what do we know about this? Well, first of all, we can have no doubt about the fact that societies with written history have been patriarchal. We know about the ancient Greeks, the Babylonians, the Chinese and so on. And truly, you look at that history and look at those accounts in, in detail, and often there's written, you know, almost like poems or, or novelistic accounts of daily life, as well as all of the sort of material evidence. And there's no doubt that they were patriarchies in the sense that I explained it. In the podcast before this one. That men dominated society politically. That this led to various evil consequences for women who were an exploited underclass in patriarchal society. 
for other societies like stateless societies, which you know didn't leave a written record, it's much more difficult. I mean, if we wanted to go back at 80,000 years, it's inc inc incredibly difficult to say what was the gender regime that applied in those societies. And I think we have to say that and just admit that that's the case. If we're looking at societies which were stateless societies when Europeans invaded the rest of the world and they came to the attention of people with writing and, and were written about, well, obviously, we're relying on the views of missionaries, explorers, but also, of course, later on, anthropologists who, who regarded it as a scientific endeavour to look at what these societies were like and to describe them. And to me, that's the most accurate kind of thing. And the other thing that we're also looking at is the archaeology of societies that built monuments and left a sort of a huge archaeological record, which can be a mixed um, blessing. It's very hard necessarily to know about it. Most main, mainstream anthropology does not hesitate to describe stateless societies, you know, like hunting and gathering and horticultural societies, you know, like in Melanesia, Africa, the Americas and so on, as patriarchal. That, if you look at even a sociology textbook, you'll find the same thing being said. And I mean, you know, like basically I would refer you to books in anthropology, you know, if you want to look into this. However, obviously there's a small minority of authors who say that earlier prehistorical societies or indigenous societies or stateless societies, whatever, were gender egalitarian. And there are some who would also say that there were matriarchies that were sort of urban matriarchies uh, with civilization and monuments and all that sort of stuff and writing and so on that were matriarchal. Yeah, and clearly I'm skeptical of that. And I'll talk about why. First of all, before I do that, I'd like to say where I think this minority view is coming from. And I like it, that's a bit ad hominem really, because just because it comes from certain kind of political sources doesn't mean it's wrong. Um, so one reason is an attempt to rescue indigenous societies from the stigma that Western culture has placed upon them as simple, savage, uncivilized, and so on. So, I mean, there's an awful history of Western colonialist powers justifying their incursions into other societies by saying, like, they're there to rescue the women. I mean, what a mad claim. But anyway, but you kind of don't want to be part of that. And it's like, it's, uh, it's understandable in a sense that people are saying, wanting to kind of go, well, you know, these societies were terrific. And associated with this is a re-evaluation of these societies in the light of the environmental crisis and the social disasters of class societies. You know, the massive inequality, the people starving to death, the peasants, the terrible plagues, the awful wars, and like in the destruction of the environment, that's obviously a huge feature of this society. And clearly, if we look at Indigenous stateless societies, most of that stuff didn't apply. They were relatively um, benign, you know, like an egalitarian and looked after the environment. And all of this is entirely true. But my view would be to extrapolate from that and say, well, they were not patriarchal, but they were gender egalitarian is actually wrong and not looking at the evidence. And then there's another one which comes out of the Marxist tradition, like in a sense, Engels, his famous book, The Origins of Family, Private Property in the State, explains gender inequality in terms of social class. You know, prior to social class, there were primitive matriarchies. And like, and this made sense in the 19th century in terms of some of the research that was coming out of the Americas and so on. And it's understandable that Engels might think this, but I just think that subsequent research showed that he was wrong. And so consequently, he explains 
how patriarchy comes about through social class. I don't think it's a very good explanation, but anyway, I'm not going to bother to go into it. And finally, why there's this view that other societies must have been different and weren't patriarchal and so on, is coming out of the social constructionist view of gender. In other words, if gender is completely socially constructed and there's no biological element to it, well then why, why, for Christ's sake, why would we expect you know, we would expect to go around the world looking at other societies that are radically different to our own, and surely we'd find some that were matriarchal, you know, like, or, you know, like gender egalitarian, let's say. All right, so now, what I'm going to do now is to take a look at a particular society, which was studied by anthropologists in the 70s. Now, this was a couple, Robin and Yolanda Murphy, and they went to the Amazon, and they were looking at a group called the Mundaruchu, and what I want to do through this is just to say that the analysis of what constitutes a patriarchy and how you can look at another society in terms of these ideas actually works with their account of the Mundaruchu. They call their book Women of the Forest. So, okay, so men lived a lot of their lives, or a lot of the time that men spent in the village was in the men's house. So that was communally owned by the men and they'd be in their hammocks or they might be doing a bit of craft work or whatever, you know, repairing a net or something like that. And while the women were either working in the gardens or... They were in their family houses, their houses with their children. In their individualised sort of dwellings, you know, like residential dwellings and with the children underfoot, like the under fives would be mostly with the women. And... So women were responsible for childcare, you could say. Men had more leisure than women, so that men would do hunting for like three days a week or something like that, whereas women were doing the gardening every day of the week, so there's a difference in terms of that. Men would gain status in the community through their hunting. Like at the end of the day, they'd bring back the kill and everyone would celebrate and have what a wonderful occasion and so on, whereas there wasn't the same kind of excitement when women prepared the meals of the porridge and so on. In pre-colonial times, men would also gain status through raids on other villages. And they'd arrive in the middle of the night and kill people, and a warrior would take heads and bring them back, you know, cut their heads off and bring them back to the village as a sign of their bravery, and so on. So women did most of the childcare and most of the hard work in gardening and in mashing and washing the manioc tubers, that, that was their main staple of their diet. So they'd be, this is a very long day and a pretty boring lifestyle. And there was an incident that took place while they were, the anthropologist was living there, which was that some of the women started calling out to the men and like, they started calling out to the men, why don't you come and help us and so on. And the men looked very embarrassed, but they wouldn't do it. And so it's like, what that incident shows is that there was an acknowledgement and an understanding in that society itself of the fact that the women's roles were boring and monotonous and that they didn't have much status and so forth. So going back to what I talked about, the hunting and the raids on other villages and so on, these are exciting. There's creative, they created status and they got social approval for this. And they're in control of the politics of the region as a whole. So these intertribal conflicts between villages contained a particular kind of political arrangement. In gathering of both sexes, women sat at the back and walked behind men. There was a, a semiotics, you know, in a sense, a body language of power in which men had power. Women who offended against the authority of the men could be gang raped, meaning, you know, like their autonomy is not being respected, it's stigmatizing and unpleasant physically. 
Sex was in the missionary position and was designed with men's pleasure in mind. The religious beliefs of the Mandaruku included a mythology in which the women originally owned the sacred flutes, which were a really important part of the ritual. I'll talk about that in a, a bit again. But anyway, um, and then because the men were able to hunt and bring meat, they could bring meat as an offering to the sacred flutes and they got control and women were forced to do housework and childcare and gardening and all of this stuff while the men released from these chores because they had the power of the sacred flutes behind them. So this is a, myth, a religious, if you like, explanation, justification and endorsement of the patriarchal nature of the society as a whole. In an initiation ritual for boys, these sacred flutes were played in the forest by men dressed as sort of dangerous spirit beings and, you know, the men would come in to, dressed up in this way grab the boys who were going to be initiated and take them away, terrifying. The women were meant to stay in their huts and, and not look at these events and not look at the sacred flutes and so on. So again, what, what we're seeing is a, a politics of patriarchy played out in terms of various symbols of domination and actual kind of barriers to women's autonomy and so forth. So I probably won't talk about that anymore, but I recommend the book. The books are beautifully written to anyone who's interested in that. So what that does is to show that in terms of things like, you know, like I talked about before, like autonomy, social approval, you know, sexuality, physical well-being, and creativity, that all of these basic desires of human nature, that we can look at another society in terms of that and talk about what's patriarchal about it. Even though clearly this is a society that's massively different to our own society, Nevertheless, this kind of application of these ideas is still possible. Right, so what's the global picture? The global picture, which is backed up by anthropological accounts and also by most archaeology and so on, is that patriarchy may not be universal, but it's pretty well close to it. I mean, in other words, when we look around, and you know, and I've done this, like you look at the, the anthropologists who, like, regarded as the wacky extreme, who start talking about gender egalitarian societies and you track back to the original books that were written about these societies you don't find them gender egalitarian you know the reality is that they don't end up looking like that so the kung of the kalahari desert is one example and there's a wonderful book by marjorie shostak a, a woman anthropologist about nisa a woman in that society and although it, clearly it's nothing like as oppressive and patriarchal as like victorian england or whatever nevertheless there's no doubt about it being a patriarchal society and another one is by colin turnbull and it's on the mabuti pygmies of the rainforest again another group which is sometimes referred to as matriarchal and you just look at that account and it's a detailed account of their lives and you have to say well you know men are making most of the decisions there are all these rituals in which men terrify the women and the, the children and so on men have control of weapons etc etc so patriarchy is not always as intense as Victorian England. It's quite common in indigenous societies for women to have separate spheres from which men are excluded, which are expected to be their preserve, in which they have autonomy. They're not being supervised or controlled by men in those spheres, you know, like obviously, say, gathering, but, but also in religious ceremonies that are devoted to women, like we find in Aboriginal societies in Australia and so on. Despite this, patriarchy as an inequality in autonomy and other pleasures, as an exploitation of women's work, 
is the general picture. When we go to the archaeological stuff, we find that the accounts of an original matriarcha are very implausible. So, for example, Katalhuyuk is a site in, in Turkey, which has been sometimes claimed as original gynocentric or matriarchal civilization. But what we find is that actually, there were, first of all, there are walls around the city which suggest, suggest sort of a warfare situation. Secondly, men are buried in graves with their weapons and so on, whereas women are buried with jewellery. The reason why cattle who you, uh, became such a magnet for these theories is that there are a lot of uh, goddess figures of women, you know, really big women, kind of huge, hugely massive. And what's read out of that is that this is, these figures represent a matriarchal civilization run by goddesses where women's fertility is the dominant idea in society and women's social power is connected to that. But as we can see, the actual other details about the society don't really back that up. And another, another thing that's important to realise about that in terms of the iconography of that society is that other than these goddess figures are bull's heads with huge nasty looking horns on them and so on like that which seem to represent male god figures or whatever okay so all i'd say about that is if you if you're not entirely convinced by that go back to some of the original accounts of those societies that are regarded as matriarchal and go back to the original accounts of those societies and the descriptions of the daily detail of life in those societies and you'll just find that it's not really backed up so this leads to a, a key question. So why is patriarchy so pervasive? And obviously, you know, the right wing has a field day with this. Well, it's inevitable. It's part of human nature. It's the temperamental and intellectual differences between men and women that are reflected in hormones and testosterone and all. Oh my God, it's really obvious, you know, da, da, da. So <clears throat> first of all, I find all of this massively implausible. You know, if you look at an AFLW match, in Australia, a women's football match, you know, women's Australian rules football match. You know, like the women in that are massively aggressive, competitive, violent to each other. And, and that's part in the context of the game. I mean, this is not intended to harm or anything, but it's completely incompatible with the view that there's huge temperamental and intellectual differences. So studies which suggest that there are these differences are based well on like contemporary society, which is dominated by patriarchy, where particular kinds of patriarchal socialization construct the personalities of men and women. That's one thing. The second thing is that what these studies always show is an overlap. So if there was this huge difference, then then you wouldn't be finding an overlap. You'd be finding a, you know a separation. It's not like that. So I don't really find that persuasive. I don't even find it persuasive to think that it was because of men's ability of fighting capacity or something like that. Since the development of weapons, it's always been possible for a woman to kill quite a big man with a weapon. The fact that women don't have weapons, they aren't in the military, you know, they aren't the warrior class, if you like, is a construction of patriarchal society rather than the cause of it. If we look at something like, for example, the Romans were able to conquer Germany and Britain and all of these other places to create the Roman Empire, and they were much shorter than the people they were fighting, but they didn't have any trouble conquering them. Similarly, the Japanese in the Second World War. I mean, the idea that since the development of weapons, which is like, Jesus, it must go back a long way, it's been very unlikely that this is really what's going on. So I, I find the explanation of second wave feminism, writers like Shulamith, Firestone, Ty Grace Atkinson, massively convincing on this stuff. I like the way Ty Grace Atkinson puts it. She says, 
men have discovered that they have an advantage in struggles with women as a class because they're not tied to childbirth and to the close intimate ties with infants that come out of childbirth and lactation. So in other words, that this is a political discovery, a discovery by men as a class that is recreated in different kinds of societies in completely different ways. So the different gender regimes of patriarchy in different societies, different roles for men and women and so on. But basically, if you boil it down, that men have various advantages in political conflicts with women that are related to women's key role in childbirth. And so like in, in most societies other than the present one, women were having, you know, between five and 10 children a space apart, maybe four year intervals and so on, and then breastfeeding until they were three years old or four years old, whatever. It's like, this is really important stuff. And the second thing that confirms this analysis is the feminist movement itself. Like the first instance of the feminist movement was in the late 19th century when the family size started to drop in the middle class in Europe. And women like Florence Nightingale and Mary Stopes, the one who popularized birth control for women were in a position of power that had never been possible for women before. And then the second wave of the feminist movement in the 60s coincides with the widespread adoption of the contraceptive pill in Western cultures, which means that women have a lot more control of conception. So when it happens, it is not some arbitrary random effect of sleeping with a man, but it actually can be chosen. And also, of course, the huge drop in family size. So it goes down to like an average of two, having been like five, 10, whatever. All of these things have created the conditions for a feminist revolution. So is patriarchy socially constructed? Yeah, up to a point, yeah. Because like men make an ongoing choice to take advantage of this situation to dominate women. It's not given by biology in some sense. It's enabled by these biological differences, but not created by them. That's one reason why it's not inevitable. The second reason it's not inevitable is that it's not inevitable now, you know? I mean, the fact is that women have much more control over reproduction. The size of the families dropped away to, you know, like two or what replacement numbers, whatever. And it needs to because of the environmental crisis. So gradually what's been happening, you know, especially since the 70s and the second wave feminist movement, is there's been a gradual intensification. And also since going right back to the late part of the 19th century, of women's power. And what that means for men is that whereas it might have made sense in terms of the desires of human nature to be the patriarch and control women's labour and so on, the various disadvantages of being the patriarch suddenly become a lot more important if women are able to push back a lot lot harder. And I think that's the situation we're in now, where actually it, it starts not to, not to make sense for men anymore to defend patriarchy. That's how I see it. And so some of these disadvantages are it's impossible to really make friends with women if you insist on maintaining patriarchal power. It just doesn't really work. The second thing is that it's associated with various kinds of alienation from your children, which, you know, means you've been cut out from a large part of life's pleasures and so on. So there are huge costs for men in patriarchy. And then the third one is the anxiety of men, the insecurity, the fact that they have to compete and show dominance, show, show, show that they're real men and all of that. That's a huge psychic pressure on men. Now, you might say, well, okay, in previous patriarchies, the game was worth the candle, but it's really not now.
Okay, I'll finish this for now. So I hope you enjoyed this. And I mean, it's a, a grim topic. And, I, you know, I have to acknowledge that. And I, I suppose I'd say too that, you know, I, I, it's like, it's not easy to look at the fact that, that patriarchy has been so widespread in human history. I mean, it causes us to think and to take pause and we need to do that. And if we want to overcome patriarchy, we have to understand where it's vulnerable and why. Okay, see ya.